Hey everyone, this is Dr. Howe. Many of you really enjoyed episode six of the GeoTrek podcast when Jennifer Tisthammer, chief of conservation with Miami-Dade County Parks Department, shared profound perspectives about the unique historical, cultural, and environmental aspects of life in South Florida. In that episode, we introduced our listeners to the Deering Estate, a public museum, historic site, and cultural and ecological field station located in Miami. When I visited Miami in January 2022, I recorded a podcast with John William Bailly, a faculty fellow in the Honors College at Florida International University. John is also the faculty director of FIU's France, Italy, and Spain study abroad programs and the artist in residence fellow at the Deering Estate. John has a passion for exploring and experiencing the world and bringing those perspectives into his art. In this podcast, you'll pick up very quickly that John applies these perspectives to both the natural world and human culture, bridging the interface between art, science, and nature. This is a profound podcast that will foster much discussion. Join in on our post-podcast dialogue on our Facebook group called GeoTrek the Community. Also, please subscribe to our podcast. It helps us track progress and establish more professional partnerships moving forward. Now let's join in on the interview with John William Bailly, recorded live at Miami's Deering Estate in January 2022. I'm here at Deering Estate. So excited to meet with you, John. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the GeoTrek podcast. It's my pleasure. I love working in the world rather than in my studio. And so I'm happy to talk about these issues of art and nature and our relationship to our place in the universe. To give our listeners context, I'm on the Deering Estate here, and John has this amazing studio. There's art all around me everywhere I look. And this is so exciting to be with you in your space here. The Deering Estate, which has the oldest archaeological site in all of Southeast Florida, which has evidence of human habitation from 10,000 years ago, up to the present day now, has these artist residencies where we are able to have access to archaeological sites, to nature preserves, to Biscayne Bay. There are eight different ecosystems. And we come here and we process all of this pristine nature, rich cultural and human history into our artwork. So I have a studio that I have access to seven days a week, pretty much 24 hours. And it's, I can't think of a better place to examine our relationship to the environment than at the Deering Estate here. No, it is beautiful. I mean, so many ecosystems. I know uh, the Deering Estate looks a lot at, at archaeology, at habitats, at the coastal environment. It seems like so many different aspects of nature in one spot. Well, one of the things that's the reason that there's this human inhabitation here for such a prolonged period is because of the natural landscape. So the Miami Coastal Ridge, which goes up to 24 feet above sea level, which is basically Mount Everest for Miami, is here and we find evidence of humans walking along this trail and trading because there's pottery and there's no clay here in South Florida. So we know that they were using this this ridge to go exchange with people from further north and it also has to this day fresh water springs so you have water elevation and the sea so that they can have a, a, a great sense of nourishment i'm always amazed how localized everything is here i mean the ridge you're talking about is quite thin right correct so basically you have the everglades fresh water to the west and biscayne bay brackish water and then the atlantic ocean uh, and between that, you have 
the Atlantic Coastal Ridge, the Miami Coastal Ridge, its greatest part is just really nine miles wide. And the elevated part is, is much smaller than that. And it's along this ridge that we find great habitation. And when Ponce de Leon appeared in 1513, that's why the Tequesta were already settled here and ready to trade and interact with them. I know Jen- Jennifer Tisthammer shared with us before that there's a long history of human habitation in this area of the world. Correct. So there are, of course, what we refer to as Paleo-Indians. I don't personally like the term Indians because it's a European, uh, so let's say Paleo-peoples. And then we have the Tequesta that were here for anywhere from 2,000 to 2,500 years. And then they encountered the Spanish. The Spanish actually try to make a settlement at the mouth of the Miami River. They build a mission in 1567. It only lasts a few years. And the Tequesta persist uh, after contact with Europeans for 250 years. And then you have the Seminoles and the Miccosukee that are chased down because of the, what we refer to as Indian Wars. It also becomes part of the Underground Railroad. And then there are Bahamians that come. Uh, there are also pirates that use it as their habitat. It goes back and forth between England and Spain, and then it goes to the U.S., there are some first northern settlers that come down, but the, the Miccosukee and the Seminole were here. And the U.S. actually did a land survey of Florida in 1850. And at the Deering Estate, there were so many, because there was the elevation, the fresh water, they just referred to the area as the hunting grounds. And they said there are too many Seminoles there. Uh, habitation is not possible. So it was that populated at, at that time? Just yeah, because. yeah. So because of the freshwater springs and you kind of have these natural bays throughout, you have estuaries from the Everglades that came. So there's fresh water that's coming through. So it's perfect for human inhabitation. That's why uh, we have, uh, as Jennifer said, evidence of human inhabitation dating back 10,000 years ago. Pretty much continuous inhabitation for 10,000 years, which is highly unusual for many parts of the world and especially Florida. Sure. And South Florida, as we know, is hurricane country, right? So if you can get up 15, 20, 24 feet, that's a big deal for protecting yourself as well, right? Oh, absolutely. With the storm surge and all of that. Yeah, it would be uh, incredibly important. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, and that's a little bit of a context. We're uh, here in John's art studio. We're going to be talking a little bit about his story, how he got from where he grew up in France over to South Florida, and a lot of his perspective on art and nature in this episode of the GeoTrek podcast. John, so much appreciate you taking time here. Really excited to hear about your perspective on art. You have a passion for it. I know you grew up in Europe. You're here in South Florida right now. How did you become interested in art? Maybe you could share a little bit about your childhood growing up in Europe. So I was born in Slough outside of London in the UK. My father's from the French Alps. My mother's from Ohio, but grew up in Rochester, New York. And at the age of two, uh, so I lived in in London then in Long Island, New York. Then we moved to Paris when I was two, and that's where my first memories are from. And then we moved to Lyon, and I lived there for five years until the age of 10. All of my family is in the French Alps, and I would go there constantly to see all my family, so my childhood is associated with mountains. And then to my great shock at the age of 10, my father said, we are moving to Miami where there are no mountains. And it was such a radical switch and just, the horizon and the world around me. Lyon at the time was a very homogeneous society. And here I came to this incredible diversity and a completely different landscape. And I actually ended up loving it. And that diversity 
and this tropical landscape feeds my work now. So the, the physical environment, the weather, the culture, everything must have been so different. Was it just a shock? Did you take to it quickly or did it take some time to adapt when you first came to South Florida as a 10-year-old? It, was, it took quite a bit of time to adapt and I still haven't adapted completely. I still miss the mountains. And so I look at clouds every day over the ocean as mountains. It was an incredible shock. Everything from the landscape, but also just, I grew up with different comic books. I looked at Asterix and Obelix, and here I came in, you know, Spider-Man. I was like, who's this guy in pajamas running around, right? So it was very interesting for me in that way. And I think there's a little bit of a complicated part of it because you're disconnected from a community and you don't mix in with other kids. And I then had my parents got divorced also. So it was, everything was just kind of going crazy. But I was, I always liked to draw. I always liked to make art and things like that. And then one time I was going through a really hard time when I was in 10th grade and a teacher came up to me. He took the hammer out of my hand as I was working on a sculpture and he pretended like he was going to smash my sculpture. And he took me to the side, he goes, John, I know you're going through some things right now, but art is the one discipline where you can take all that distress that you have and channel it into art and express yourself. And I've never stopped doing that. Wow, so it was almost a freedom of permission, like express yourself, this is a way to kind of work through some of those things. Correct, and once I was into that, nothing else was ever an option. I knew that financially it wasn't the wisest decision, career-wise it wasn't the wisest decision, but I had to do this. I had to do So this. you had a passion for art, you were a teenager, like how did this play out then as a young adult as far as doing art and then even becoming a professional artist? So it's, it's, it's an unexpected journey and I always tell my students, because I'm a professor at FIU in the Honors College now to not do this, but I actually got a scholarship to the Honors of Chicago and I went there for a year, but then my family cut me off saying that it wasn't a financially viable uh, career. So I dropped out because even though I had scholarships, I would have had to take so many loans. It would have been greatly in debt. And then I dropped out and I went around Europe. I went backpacking to different museums to see the artwork. And then I came back to Miami and I just started school. I ended it. I got a degree in painting, a Bachelor of Fine Arts, which is really good to use if you have a table that is not level because you can fold up the degree to un put it underneath a leg. It's the only use of it. I was in charge of the acrylics aisle at an art department store working for minimum wage with a bachelor's degree. And then I decided, I got a copy of US News and World Report. I looked at the number one school for painting, which was Yale. I applied and then I got in. So I went from working minimum wage to Yale University School of Art. And then that opened so many doors professionally for me on, on an academic level, but also on a professional gallery level. Could you walk through, so you're a student there at the Yale School of Art. What does that look like? Like, are you trying new mediums of art? Are you experimenting with your own designs? Are you more studying under other, other professors and other, other people? I mean, what does that time look like as far as your own personal explorations in art? So at, at Yale, every student has their own studio. There are about 40 students in the program. It's a two-year program. And then there are about, I'd say, 20 professors that are either permanent or visiting that come through and give you critiques in your studio. You do take some classes, but primarily it's you working in your studio 
and professors coming in and absolutely savaging and destroying your paintings. And it can be painful at times, but when you listen to them, your paintings actually improve. And so that was my experience. It was a fantastic experience. And particularly one professor had an incredible impact on me. His name was uh, John Walker and uh, a British painter, ironically. And that was a huge transformation for me. Did you do mostly painting at that time? Were you also doing like drawing, sculpting? So the degree was in painting and printmaking. And, so, and I've always drawn. I can't make paintings without drawing. And that's fascinating. Um, and, you know, we're really interested, too, with Geotrek in this interface between art and the environment, art and weather and climate. And I know you and I had some discussions yesterday about this this interface. And I know for you it's really important getting out there in nature and, and just kind of you shared some perspectives with me that I thought were fascinating yesterday about this. Yeah, so these are my views as in relation to my personal work, and I don't want to cast judgment on other artists and the way that they work, although I have to say that it it is a problem for me. So I like to know my subject. So I try to paint things and draw things that I not have just uh, seen a photograph of, but I've lived. And so when I make drawings that I then use as a foundation for my paintings, they're things that I do in situ. I'm on location to do them. And because when you're there, you're not just drawing the appearance of something, you're drawing the living of it. You're not just drawing the appearance, you're drawing the experience. So it's the feeling of it, the experience of that moment. It's hot. There's mosquitoes. I'm on my kayak. I'm getting splashed with water. I get hungry, right? Like all of a sudden, one time, one of my drawings flew into the bay and I had to go get it and I cut my foot and then there was blood on the drawing, right? So... Um, and, and that influences you the way, oh, okay, the rain is coming. I need to finish this drawing quickly. I love the probably made-up story of Turner, the, the fantastic British seascape painter that wanted to know the sea. So he had himself tied to a mast on a boat during a storm so he could know it. And so for me, when I see a painting of nature that's based on a photograph, it's removed several times. So... The painter's really painting that photograph, not actually out in nature. Right, because everything's frozen, right? When you go out and you're painting a tree, the leaves are moving, the light is flickering. And one of the things that I love about the Impressionists is they were outdoor painters, en plein air. And you can see that they're struggling with the environment and the shifting. Try to draw clouds in life and paint clouds in life compared to painting them from a, a photograph. But they're constantly moving. The light is constantly shifting. Exactly. They're changing form. They're changing the place that they are in your drawing. And so they're elusive. And when a cloud is stiff as it appears in a photograph, and then it appears that way in a painting, you can tell like, oh, that's not that's just a, it's, it's based on an image of a cloud, a frozen cloud, and it doesn't capture the movement in the way that some of the impressionists capture brilliantly. And so for me, I love photography. I don't have a problem with photography of nature. I love that. What I don't like is the paintings or drawings based on photographs, because you're, you're like uh, going back into Plato's cave, like you're removed from the original even more. And so for me, it's really important to be directly connected with that. Yeah, that's amazing. So when you're out in nature, it is dynamic. The leaves are moving, the clouds are moving. Sometimes do you feel it's a struggle to, to capture this in a painting because you're taking something that's dynamic and you're, you're putting it in a still shot, right? So the struggle is the painting. So when you see, for example, 
let's let's pick a, a Cezanne or a, or a Van Gogh. They are struggling trying to get it. They're making corrections on the painting. And that struggle is what makes it, for me, an interesting artwork rather than simply an illustration of something. Right, so it's a whole process. It's like the struggle is part of that process that makes it beautiful. The, strug- the struggle is the expression of humanity. And it's the, because that struggle connects the artist to the environment. It's more sincere of a connection when it's not exactly as it appears because nothing is frozen in time when you're drawing it. And, and they were there. They, I'm, I'm imagining you could talk to an impressionist or for you, the times that you've been out, you probably look at a painting and you a lot of times probably remember that moment and remember, oh, that was the day that the thunderstorm was coming in quickly, right? That's the day the winds picked up and all of a sudden I was getting splashed everywhere while I was drawing. Because I, I, what I like to do also is I go way out on my kayak and I just draw the clouds, the water. I like to, draw, there's an island here that's part of the Deering State called Chicken Key. It's actually a barrier island. There are diamondback terrapins that nest on it. So it's really a unique space. And I love to go out near that and draw it. But I'm drifting because I'm in my kayak. And the other day I was, I, stopped, I was drawing, drawing. I loved it. I was there before sunrise. And all of a sudden I realized like, wow, these waves are really picking up. And I looked and I was about two miles offshore. And I was like, okay, now I got to get back. But that entire experience is part of the drawing. Right. It, it, you're living in that moment and you're maybe drifting with the wind or with the water or, or you're maybe when you're in water, you can be taken to a place that you didn't intend. But oh, there absolutely. can be a lot of interesting surprises in that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And also the marine life that surprises you, whatever comes up to you, whether it's a shark or a manatee or a whole bunch of birds is really that's a part of it as well. Well, let's talk about that. Has there ever been a time that you go out on an excursion and you have an idea of what you want to draw or paint and maybe what actually happens out there is very different than what you had been planning yeah so that well that happens all the time because i think i'm going one place and then the clouds are absolutely perfect or i go out and it's a day without clouds so then i'll go on to chicken key and one of the things that i have very consciously done how i'm a european painter pretty much i I love all traditions but because of my my personal roots and where i go because of my job is i'm always in france i'm looking at these paintings and i i see myself in that and then i look at those and one of the things I notice is none of those painters that I see have painted mangroves because mangroves don't exist in Europe. And I thought, like, here is a, something I can introduce into this long narrative of painting that hasn't been there before are the mangroves. And so I've really, almost all of my works, and you can look around, they all have mangroves in them. Well, and like you said, you're, you're painting the real life and real experience that you have outdoors. You're not painting a photograph from Indonesia or Greenland or something. It it's really has to be local because it relies on your local experience outdoors where you're at. Exactly. And what defines Florida really are the mangroves. Without the mangroves, we would wash away, right? And that's where all the marine life, it's like a nursery for all the marine life. And so I found it as this crucial, it's the skeleton and on, in a sense, the, the, the structure of South Florida. So I incorporate it almost into all of my paintings. And uh, you can see, for example, in many of them, the mangroves are actually consuming European structures so that my European past is there being consumed by the tropics. 
it kind of parallels your life in some way, you know, that you... Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Everything I paint, I try to have it be what I'm seeing. Those paintings up there are all European explorers that are being consumed by mangroves. Well, that, that's fascinating and so personal, you know. Yeah, that's what yeah. I love about it. Your personal story ties in so well with that. All of the paintings are not purely autobiographical, but they all relate to something about me, but they're not about me. I want, I, I use it just as a starting point to explore other things, yeah. Man, this is, this is amazing. Uh, and I can't wait for our listeners to see the video clips too of this beautiful space and, and to get to know John a little bit better. John, this interface between science and art, you know, I really feel like it goes both ways. You know, science, extreme weather, disasters, they influence art, but also art can be used, I think, as a very powerful medium to educate people about the environment and about nature. What are your thoughts on on those topics? So for me, one of the things that the arts, um, poetry, uh, theater, dance, or uh, the visual arts, one of the things that they're really good at is talking about controversial issues in a non-controversial way. So they allow us to talk about everything without making people automatically become divisive and political. And one of the things that my painting, I hope to do indirectly, is raise awareness about the beauty and the uh, endangered nature of the Miami landscape. I have mangroves everywhere. A lot of people don't even know what mangroves are or don't understand how central they are. And then if I explain, oh, I have mangroves in there because they're what hold Miami together, people are like, well, what do you mean? And then I can go on and explain that. So even it doesn't even have to be a direct environmental statement, a direct political statement, a direct policy statement. It can just raise awareness indirectly. And, and so that's my perspective on, on how to do that. I remember seeing mangroves for the first time and I'm like, wait, is that a tree with like roots coming out of the, it's just, I had never seen anything like that. So it, it was shocking to me. I could see where painting those forms or just, you know, the visualization of that. And, and then, like you said, you travel to Europe, you travel all over the place. You're taking that art with you. Right. Well, another thing just on mangroves is you can snorkel in Biscayne Bay and not see much. And people are like, oh, there's, there's not much life in here. And then you snorkel in the mangroves and it's just, everything is in there, it's spectacular. But one of the things that's interesting to me is there are no mangroves in Europe. And so to juxtapose European structures with this South Florida landscape is in a sense, the, the world's coming together in a, in a different way. Interestingly, over the summer, I spent the summer in France uh, painting in my palette, the colors that I used changed completely. The texture changed completely. I still had figures in it because I like to place these figures in the landscape, but the world that they were in completely changed. And I realized it wasn't even conscious. It's just that that environment influences me and I think uh, many artists in that way. Well, that's really amazing. So you're saying even the colors in the color palette have changed when you change location. Like To give an example is I was painting mostly blues because I'm like, oh, I'm at Biscayne Bay. There's the ocean and then there's the sky. So blues, blues, blues. And then I started seeing the sunrise. I'm like, wait, there's pinks, there's oranges, there's really intense reds, there's mauves, there's all these things. And it totally changed my palette, which you can see here. Now there's all those different colors in there. And that is a direct response to, rather than painting the way I thought something was, 
actually living it, experiencing it, and like I need to change my palette to properly reflect the environment. Another example is I, I have this painting that's Notre Dame burning. Notre Dame, I've known it my whole life, and I would visit it every year. And when I saw it burning, I was really moved. But then I'm painting it, and like, wow, I don't really know what a fire looks like, a huge scale fire. And then they did a prescribed burn here at the Deering Estate. And the guys were great. They let me go right next to it. And I was drawing fire as it was just consuming the landscape in front of me. And it completely changed my painting. That's tremendous. Uh, Just, you know, seeing something dynamic like that on the landscape. I have to ask you, so you spend a lot of time going back to France in the summer times. When you get there, how are the colors different in your palette, say, if you get to the French Alps in the summer? So, um, yeah, I'm the... I'm a prof- uh, like I said, I'm a professor in the Honors College at FIU here in Miami, but I'm the faculty director, and I have been for over a decade, of France, Italy, and Spain study abroad. So I spent three months backpacking with 20-somethings throughout Europe. And uh, I always get to draw and paint there. And with COVID, I've spent two summers just painting in France. It's completely different. There are very hard edges in mountains there are different colors. Nature in Europe has wide open spaces. Aside from the ocean, if you walk in Miami and the genuine, I'm not talking about a landscape park, that's not the nature of Miami. If you walk through a tropical hardwood hammock, it's claustrophobic, it's all over you. And so that space in European landscapes really influenced me as well. It's interesting, in Miami, our urban planning is all spread out. And in Europe, it's primarily claustrophobic, small streets, people on top of each other. But our nature here in Miami is claustrophobic. These reversals of the two, and that greatly influences me. I've noticed, and this was maybe a few decades ago, but flying into France, going to other places in Europe, often still seeing like small towns and villages separated by these large tracts of land where, at least at that time, I did not see as much suburban sprawl, you know, where you actually have like a lot of open space and farmland between these villages. But but, I mean, also, but even when you're walking in the woods there, there's, you, you know, like there's, there's no, not as much undergrowth here. You don't have a square foot where a plant is not on top of so, you. So even in the forest, it feels really different. The understory here, the, the undergrowth is the very under, thick, yeah. right? Oh, yeah, intense, yeah. And, and so there's, it's a completely different experience. There you just, you're hiking and you're, there's trees all around. You're walking through the woods, but you have space. Here, you're just, there's stuff all over you constantly. So. I'm guessing part of that, uh, from what I've heard, tropical environments, the biodiversity is incredibly, uh, very dense, right? There's a lot of animals, a lot of species, a lot of plants in a small area. Yeah, and, and uh, I'm able to hike into the natural area here. The Deering State is 460 acres, and I go out there alone. And how I see every... I just. Two days ago, I saw a coyote right near me. I see snakes, raccoons all the time. The birds, forget it. Like the birds are just everywhere. There's a constant. Oh, one thing, I'll give you an example as well. One of the things that I love about painting in Miami is I don't, there's no negative space. You know how there's in paintings, there's positive space and negative space. Positive space is a subject and the negative space around is usually kind of empty. So I have removed all negative space in my paintings. I try to fill up every part of it with something because that's how our landscape is here. We don't have negative space in the Miami landscape. And so I just put things on top of each other constantly because that's how it is. There's just, it's all around you. In the environment, there would always be a tree, a shrub, a bush, something's growing, right? There's something everywhere. And the amount of 
Also, uh, not just the flora, but the fauna that I see is just constant. It's everywhere. I went on a sluice log the other day in the Everglades and a fish swam up my pant leg. Like it's just constant. <laughs> You're like, where can I go to, to get away? And so I, I was in Croatia and I was snorkeling there. And I would see a school of fish of maybe 20 fish, like, wow, this is beautiful. And then it was just empty sea. My first day back in Miami, I went snorkeling. I saw two manatees, a shark, a bunch of stingrays. And I went into a school of fish where it's thousands and they consume you. I saw more marine life in Miami in the first half hour that I was back in the water compared to two weeks of snorkeling in Croatia. Wow, so it's just so dense. There's so much biodiversity. There's a lot happening here in a small amount of space. And my paintings reflect that by just being jam-packed in every square inch with information. I do drawings, and then I take the drawings, and because my paintings are 7 by 10 feet, so I can't do those out there. So I use the drawings as a basis. Well, and it seems like you're out in the water, you're out in the forest, you're trying to experience all these different landscapes as well. Oh, absolutely. I, I want to live life to the fullest and experience... I went kayaking a sunrise, and as I, I was coming around a turn, a shark must have been coming the other way, and it almost, we ran into each other, and it almost tipped my kayak, it freaked out. But to me, that wasn't a traumatic experience, it was exhilarating. Like, it was part of the experience, right? I'm connected with nature, right? And I, I love that, yeah, it, it's wonderful. John, any, any last thoughts when you know, people thinking about this interface between science and art and, and your journey, any, any last things that you'd want people to think about or, or explore in their own minds as they listen to this podcast? I think one of the things that is really important with contemporary art is that people ask themselves first whether they like it or not. And actually, that should be the last question you should ask yourself. The first one is, you know, what is this? What is the artist trying to do? What issues are they addressing? How did they make this? Try to process it and just take it in and forget about whether it's art or not. Just look at it as an object or an idea, a concept that somebody is presenting to you. And don't judge it right away and open yourself to it. And um, Do you basically encourage people to more or less be an observer, like just kind of take this in on all these different levels that you just shared? Initially, yes. And then formulate your opinion, but give it a chance first. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost as if people are judging a book without having read it or you know, dismissing an idea because of its context rather than really looking at it. I see. So you, what you're saying is kind of give it a chance, observe it, and let that soak in. Ask, ask some of these basic questions. What is, the art, what is the artist trying to communicate and how did they do it? Um, these different questions. Correct. And I'm a traditional painter. I use oil paint. But I think that there's a real, a real problem of people shutting off, let's say, installations and, and things like that just because they're like, oh, I don't like installations. I like this isn't art and things like that. Give it a chance. Try it out. Um, because uh, there, uh, there's just incredible work that addresses really amazing issues. And some of that work is sometimes the best way to shorten this divide between art and the world, art and the environment. Well, and that brings up a question. How have you seen in your own life your art evolve, both in the messages you communicate or maybe even in the mediums you're using for doing the art? So one of the things that I learned from making work and seeing how people reacted to it is I found that as an artist, it's much more powerful to ask questions than to make statements. 
Wait, expound on that. Explain what you mean by that. So telling somebody you are this is much less powerful than having the person ask, who am I? I see. So maybe helping people as you ask questions or as we ask questions to others, it helps them reflect on their own answers. So if you just think about uh, art that is spiritual in nature, it's much more powerful to ask whether or not God exists than to say like, this is God and this is the embodiment of God. Well, and it becomes thought provoking for people to kind of, you know. It becomes soul searching. And uh, so for example, one of the greatest works, Michelangelo's David, when you look at it, it seems heroic. And, but if you look at his face, there's a doubt. And it's almost, David is asking himself, can I do this? And then that piece is supposed to be inspirational. Like, I am great, I can do this. But when you look at it, it's like, can I do this? There's that doubt. Can I be this great person? Well, and, and that could be inspirational, right? Because we all have those doubts. You're like, wait, I identify myself exactly. in there. It, that humanity, that doubt becomes more inspirational than just a blind statement of greatness. And so even in the environment, when we, when we relate this to the environment, is it's much, for example, we're destroying the environment. But an artwork that tells somebody you're destroying the environment, I find is less persuasive than asking somebody, what is your relationship to the environment? Have you considered this aspect of your relationship to the environment? And, and I think that by persuasion, rather than belligerent approaches, art can be much more effective. Right, as opposed to slapping people on the wrist, saying, wow, ha- have you considered exploring the coastal environment with these amazing mangroves with how the light plays? People might say, I've never seen anything like that, right? And, and maybe w- question um, the coastal environment or, or question their relationship with nature, perhaps. Correct. And seeing paintings of mangroves, seeing photographs of mangroves, make people wonder, like, I, I live in Miami. I don't really know mangroves. The greatest environmental transformation that I've seen is when I take my students out to Chicken Key, uh, the uninhabited island in Biscayne Bay, and we do a cleanup and we spend days there. And it's them seeing the mangroves, living it, that it's that experience rather than telling them, you need to save mangroves because this and this. Like the living of it is much more powerful than anything else. And if painting can contribute to people having that reflection, I think it's much more effective. John, something I've learned from talking to you is, you know, you're really deeply involved with leading this art program, but then you're out in nature a lot. Is this unique to Florida International University in Miami, or are there other schools that do this in other locations in the States and beyond? Uh, What are your thoughts on that? How can you help uh, maybe an 18-year-old listening to this that has a passion for environment, passion for art, and they're like, wait, how do I get to do these things? So it's specific not just to FIU, but the Honors College at FIU. And what the Honors College at FIU does is it creates interdisciplinary courses for students from throughout FIU. FIU has 55,000 students. The Honors College has 2,500 of students from all different majors. And then we get those students together and we get different professors from different disciplines and we just invent classes. So my class is called Miami in Miami and it's a study abroad structured class where we never meet in our classroom. Miami is our classroom. 
and we go out and learn by visiting places everywhere from Overtown in the heart of Miami to South Beach to the Everglades to Chicken Key. And so it's experiential learning and it enables students that are biology, literature, accounting majors to see the intersection of art, the environment, history, culture. And you're helping them explore the city in which they live too. So it's absolutely, uh, it's so interesting. So historic Overtown used to be called Colored Town because it became the part of town with segregation where blacks were forced to live. And it has the reputation of just being so hostile to visitors. And my students have never been there. They put on their social media, I'm in, I'm in Overtown. People are like, oh my gosh, are you okay? And they're actually, well, I don't know. I was just welcomed into a church where somebody told us about how when Martin Luther King gave a speech, they're now going to lunch. And so it, it also destroys these artificial constructed boundaries. Um, yeah, they're saying, I was there. I made some friends. Yeah, it was... Also, they've never been to the Everglades, so they don't have this profound connection to the land, to the earth that they, are, that they live on. And it ends up, the sluice log, which students that live in Miami have never been to the Everglades, which blows my mind. And then they're slogging, getting to know their environment, and it's their favorite class. And then they go back with their friends, they go back with their families, and so that profound connection is developed in the class. Yeah, you're helping them understand the city in which they live and then the Everglades and the environment around and, and they're like, wait, I could I could come out and do a and go out in the Everglades on the weekend with my with well, my aunt. They do that all the time. They whenever they the places that we visit, they go all the time. Um, one of my former students, um, well two of them, Nicole Patrick and actually my son, Andrew Bailey, after the chicken key going out there and doing the cleanups, they organize them themselves, where they just take people out there and clean it up. And so, and they, they, they say, hey, I have a date of January, whatever, to go out to Chicken Key. How the spots fill up within an hour. And it's just all these people that have never been out there, but they see it on social media, they tell their friends, and so many people have been out there that would have never gone before. Well, and that concept, I think, is really scalable. If you're in Seattle, Denver, Paris, Beijing, wherever, this idea of getting out with people and exploring the landscape together, learning more about it, right? That, that's, those are skill sets and a viewpoint that anyone could apply anywhere in the world. Right. So the way that we were talking about it with art, knowing your subject, the way that you were talking about it, the environment, you know, if you're going to talk about cold, you should know cold. I think that education, when the curriculum lends itself to it, you should go out to the world to know it. So if you want to learn about the environment, you need to go to the Everglades. If you want to learn about art, don't do a PowerPoint. Go to a museum. There's fantastic museums here. If you want to learn about the struggle of civil rights over the last century and a quarter, go to Overtown. I think as much as possible when we can, and it's not always feasible for all curriculums, go out into the world, into society, into the environment to learn it because the connection will be much more profound and the learning outcomes will be last far longer. And I think we're modeling for people uh, throughout their whole life. You can get out of your house and get out there and, and explore the world, right? Right, because then it applies to parenting also. And yeah, it, it's, it's a completely different way that I think is necessary 
for, uh, for education, especially higher education when it lends itself to it. John, thank you so much for taking time this morning. This is really inspirational. We touched on a lot of different aspects of art, science, and nature. How can people follow? Are you visible online or the FIU program? How, how can people learn about this? There are a few different ways. The, the main way is I'm represented by the LNS Gallery here in Miami that always has my paintings in the gallery. There's also my website, which is John W. B-A-I-L-L-Y. It's the French. And then uh, through the Honors College at FIU, they also have online quite a bit of things. And from the Honors College at FIU, I always have interns that come and help me with my paintings and go kayaking and, and hiking with me all the time. Fantastic. Well, I know this will be inspirational for a lot of our listeners and best wishes to you in, in your career and your travels and journeys. Thank you, Hal, and I think that we're going to go sluice logging tomorrow in the Everglades. We are. I'm so excited. We're going to go out together. Sluice logging, it's basically a, a water hike, right, in the Everglades? Yeah, we're going to be waist to chest deep in the Everglades with no sign of civilization anywhere, and it's so refreshing and fantastic and adventurous. I'm so excited. It's going to be my first sluice log, and I can't wait for it. So I'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Well, you could hear how excited I was to join John's class for a sluice log in the Everglades. Enjoy these audio clips that I recorded out there in the field. And if you listen closely, you can actually hear the movement of water. Much of our hike was in standing water out there in the Everglades. You know, humans are created in God's image. So when you're nude, you are closest to God. You're in a pure state. Fast forward, I was making a painting about a Jesuit that lived in Miami in the 1500s. And I could not find, I wanted to find the oldest copy of the letter. And so I went to the source. I wrote to the Jesuits in Rome. And I ended up communicating with Dario, who's a Jesuit in Rome. And it happened to be almost a year ago today. And I sent him like, hey, I'm going to the Everglades today. And I sent him pictures. And he goes, this is a, a Jesuit's perspective. He goes, these pictures are the world untouched, which is the world as God created it, untouched by us. It is a pure state. God willing, I am so lucky to visit it one day. And so that is not, I'm not doing, I'm not a religious person, so it's not a a prayer here. But this idea of us coming here is in a sense connecting to our inner, pure, natural selves. So much of what we do is artificial, And when you come here, there's a purity to it, whether you're into nature or whether you're into a concept of God, whatever the religion, this is a cathedral. It's as the world was created in its natural or spiritual state. And some people believe that it is just refreshing. It resets your body to come back out to this. You're back in tune with the natural world, which is what your instincts are. Of course, since we were geo-trekking through the Everglades, the topic of alligators came up. I learned that alligators are not just found widespread in the area. If we saw one on our sluice log, it would probably be in a place called an alligator hole. You can see an alligator hole from a distance by the distinct opening of trees in the canopy. On this sluice log, we actually did find an alligator in the alligator hole. John said it was the first time this happened on a sluice log with students in the Everglades. It's the first time you've seen a gator in the alligator hole? Yeah. Look at the little bird right there. 
John challenged us to get out in the world to experience what it's really like. This fits so well with our worldview here at GeoTrek. The conversation with John made me reflect on times when I've discovered major differences between the real world and the world I pictured in my mind. I'll share two quick examples with you, one cultural and the other natural. In my 20s, I spent several years in the Middle East and North Africa. This included a summer in Cairo, Egypt, and two years in Casablanca, Morocco. When I arrived in this part of the world, I was surprised that people were so friendly, warm, and hospitable to our American team. These people spoke Arabic as a first language, and cultural stereotypes would suggest that they'd hate Americans and would reject us. I found the exact opposite to be true, and everywhere we went, people wanted to visit with us and invite us into their homes. In the natural world, I've been surprised by the weather along the Gulf Coast. When I lived in Alaska for two winters, I could never understand why my Gulf Coast friends would bundle up so much in the winter. Our temperatures in interior Alaska were often 60 or 70 degrees colder than the Gulf Coast, so I imagine the Gulf was just warm all year. After I moved to the Gulf, I understood. The cold is so raw along the Gulf. With a high humidity and strong winds, a temperature of 35 degrees above on Lake Pontchartrain or Galveston Bay felt colder to me than a temperature of zero in clear, calm, and dry Fairbanks, Alaska. These are just two examples I thought of from my personal life. What are cultural or natural examples you've discovered where the way a place actually is was considerably different than your expectations? Please share your answers in our Facebook group called GeoTrek the Community. John, thank you so much for coming on the GeoTrek podcast. If you'd like to check out some of John's artwork, you can see that online or you can visit the LNS Gallery in Coconut Grove, Florida. Thanks for listening to GeoTrek. Until the next episode, this is Dr. Hal signing off. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Hal. Thank you so much for listening to the GeoTrek podcast. If you're wondering how we come up with such interesting topics each week, we rely on an amazing global community to help direct our scientific fieldwork, articles, and podcasts. If you have an idea for a topic or can connect us to an outstanding future podcast guest, please reach out to us on our website at geo-trek.com or on our Facebook group called GeoTrek the Community. On behalf of our GeoTrek production, Team, this is Dr. Hal. I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast.